Hey guys and girls, welcome back to Molecule to Market, where as always we go inside the outsourcing space of the global drug development sector. I'm your host, Roman Segal, and in today's episode I'll be talking with Jen Chadwick, who is Chief Scientific Officer at Protogene. I really enjoyed today's conversation with a clearly very smart woman. It's one of those episodes where I'm speaking to someone and actually listening to them thinking, my God, you are so bright. <laughs> it is unbelievable. And Jen was kind enough to give us some real gems from her perspective as she navigates uh, predominantly the kind of um, complex therapies area of the industry. Uh, Jen opens up about her kind of background in academia and then the lessons and learning she had from moving into industry and what that was like. We get into a really interesting discussion about what Jen has seen in the last decade or so in terms of a real shift from more tactical outsourcing from an early phase perspective to much more value-based, holistic, strategic outsourcing um, earlier on in the drug development process, which I thought was, was an interesting point. We go on to talk about kind of emerging therapeutics and why Jen says they just simply don't play by the rules. And this was a particular um, interesting area that you should listen out for because Jen kind of shows the kind of nuances of these new therapeutic areas and that we just don't know that much about them and the kind of iterative nature of just learning about them as we as time goes by. Risk-based assessment is something that comes up a lot in the interview and how Jen views uh, I suppose the view of sponsors in the way that they're looking at developing new products. And as part of that, there is a real need to you know, increase the bar for understand, understanding these complex modules and ultimately producing them in a smart, cost-effective and efficient way. That's just some of the things that we talk about talk about in the interview. Uh, I certainly also listen out for uh, Jen talking about kind of the old CRO model versus what she sees today. Uh, her kind of journey in M&A, a huge amount of m and in the businesses she's been involved with. And we also cover some aspects of female leadership and diversity towards the back end, which is always uh, really interesting. I suppose for background, uh, Jen, uh, as well as being the CSO across uh, Protogene, uh, she brings two decades of experience leading scientific teams in biotech industry and academia and is a well-recognized expert in developing biologic and gene therapy products. She served as VP of analytical development and of biological development at Bioanalytics. Previously, Dr. Chadwick was tenured professor of pharmaceutical chemistry at the University of Canvas. Canvas even, not Canvas. And Jen has authored thought leadership articles related to analytical development of gene therapy products and published approximately 75 peer-reviewed publications 13 patterns, four book chapters demonstrating her expertise and deep understanding of biologic and drug development. And if that is not enough, she's also served as Associate Director at CAS and as a member of the Steering Committee for Academic Industry Relations at the Mass Biotech Council. She's also a visiting scholar in the Department of Chemistry and Chemical Biology at Northeastern University and received her PhD from Purdue University Department of Chemistry. I know, very impressive lady. So, as always, thank you for, for listening to the show. Um, I genuinely hope you're enjoying Molecule to Market in 2023. We'd love to hear from you and get some nominations for guests that you'd like to see 
on the event this year. Um, thanks to my team, as always, for pulling this together and bringing it to your ears. If you haven't done already, please make this day that you go on the App Store and give us a nice five-star rating and maybe share with a colleague. Beyond that, please enjoy today's show. Hey, Jen, welcome to Molecule to Market. Thanks, Ramon. It's great to join you. It's great to have you here and um, it would be fantastic to start off, Jen, if you could give our listener a bit of the backstory of how you ended up in this space. Like, Talk us through your journey from from college to to where you are today. Yeah, happy to. Um, I I have a non-traditional approach, so um, I often get uh, commented on that that it's unusual. Um, So I I started out in college and like a lot of people was undecided about what to do. And it was through uh, a series of personal events, including uh, a health issue that led me towards deciding to move towards science. Um, And I, I think the basics of school, math, science, you can be good at it, but maybe it feels a bit mechanical um, through the educational process. And it was really um, when it became more personal to me that I realized the discovery elements of research were where I wanted to put my efforts. And so I went from an undergraduate degree at Miami University in Southern Ohio uh, to graduate school at Purdue in chemistry um, to pursue trying to understand some aspects of at the initial point um, memory to investigate and elucidate new things and and I loved that process it was really what triggered in me the desire to go the direction I have for my career um, and I, I think like many people the things that happen actually influence what we do next and so I pursued my PhD in the chemistry department at Purdue um, worked in a lab that was focused on real detailed molecular characterization uh, using solution NMR on biologics molecules. And uh, it was a time where I think I, I got introduced to technology that wasn't familiar, like big Unix-based computers and coding and things I never had really thought about. Uh, and it opened my eyes. And, and I just loved that process. It was uh, the beginning for me. And so I went through graduate school and and completed the work I did in Solution NMR and then moved into a postdoc, uh, which was also at Purdue in the Marquis Structural Biology Center there, uh, which was mostly crystallographers, but also a lot of biophysical characterizations and understanding how molecules uh, behave. And so that that really grabbed my attention and I, I enjoyed spending you know, the time there with that group focused again on molecular detail and understanding molecules and their behavior. And at the time I finished my postdoc, I looked around for what kinds of opportunities were out in the world for a scientist with those credentials. And there are many things. And so it was a lot of fun to, to explore. It was also a time where entrepreneurism was really coming into the university in a bigger way. And I knew a lot of people who were interested in starting companies and having those kinds of discussions. And um, I thought I'd probably pursue uh, going into a company, but ended up finding a very good fit with a particular group at the University of Kansas in pharmaceutical chemistry. And I absolutely loved that opportunity because it was a hybrid uh, of the industry and 
fundamental scientific research. And so it was the ability to pursue discovery, but in a more focused way that aligned with the marketplace and the needs of, of people to kind of drive what was being done. So, I mean, that's my sort of formal educational, you know, track and path. And after I got to the university, uh, I learned a tremendous amount through collaborating with industry partners. Uh, obviously, the, the fundamental research, the NIH-style research, was very familiar and continued to work on that. But in working with people who were developing biologic drugs in a practical way, uh, really gained a lot of understanding about molecules in a way that was different from you know the more academic investigations. And I fortunately had a discovery that took place in my group where we elucidated a new chemical reaction and had come up with uh, really good applications for targeted therapeutic and imaging um, using protein-based molecules, which I knew well. So I founded a company um, at the time called Acogen, spun it out of the university. And that was my foray out of academia because I loved that process of translational research. And again, I think because of the connections uh, to the industry, I had access to uh, people who really understood the industry at a very senior and sort of originator level to advise me on, you know, how to put things together and, and grow a product um, towards the market. Um, unfortunately, as you know, entrepreneurism is a risky game and not everything. <laughs> so, um, you know, I learned my lessons from doing that. And, and there were really two things that I, I learned that I wanted out of the next experience. And one was to really understand the business aspects of what drives science uh, and its success in the marketplace. And so I wanted to join a group where I could learn that and uh, moved over to bioanalytics um, with an entrepreneurial team there that had spun out the company from Northeastern. So uh, that company was mass spectrometry based in the beginning. And again, very deep molecular characterizations, but the work was being applied into later stage development. And obviously kind of coming from the path I had, most of my experience was with the earlier stage research and development. Uh, and so it was an opportunity to also then open the door to learning about regulatory influences and understanding the development path and the, and the clinical drivers for success as well. If, if we just uh, pause in that point of your story, Jen, just wanted to rewind back to the kind of spin from the academia to being part of the founder team at Ecogen. What was that experience like? I mean, I, I have a very entrepreneurial journey so yeah but in my mind the academic environment could not be more different <laughs> and so i'm just genuinely interested in understanding how you found that transition from being part of a large organization albeit a team within a big institution to being a spin out which i again my assumption is it would be smaller and more agile and you have to wear multiple hats is that a fair reflection? And, and what was what was that particular time like for you? Yeah, I, I think that's very fair. And um, in spinning out, you know, there's always a progression. And so it wasn't just you, you jumped from one thing to the next. But, you know, we made the discovery and through, uh, for example, research grants 
uh, I got uh, funding from the the Wallace Coulter Foundation for a translational research award, and they put a team of people around you um, and had a mentoring program for you know early stage entrepreneurial development. So I had a lot of connection with uh, investors from you know VCs who participated uh, to people who did technology review to attorneys who worked in intellectual property space. Um, and that was a more formalized approach that that helped with some early uh, development. I also had a lot of one-off advisors from the industry, people who had been affiliated with, you know, so your household name formation, your Genentechs, your your Amgens, right? Uh, those kinds of advisors who had been through the process and and all of that was necessary, I think, to to go on that journey. Um, the technology itself was very exciting, had an, a lot of different possibilities. And I, I think a key in that was focus um, around the science itself, its applications, and also how do you take it forward process-wise. And, and so having that, you know, sort of multiplet of, of support uh, was really critical. Um, one, one sort of piece of the University of Kansas that I always... I found interesting and actually attracted me to the department in the beginning was the founding of the department. Uh, it came about in, in the 60s when academia was really considered and operated like the ivory tower that, that people refer to, and it was separate from industry. And there was a man named uh, Takaguchi who really wanted to work with the industry. He wanted to see these fundamental discoveries translate into things that actually impacted people, right? And and faster, not just in isolation. And he was in the University of Wisconsin. At, and at that time, it was considered really the top chemistry department in the country. Um, but he left that department, went searching for a place where he could be entrepreneurial and he could make connections with industry and drive from idea to translation. And so the University of Kansas was the place in which he found a home, and the department really carries that tradition with it. So there are a lot of people who are thinking that way, spinning out companies, um, and driving to innovations that get licensed and partnered and, and taken into the marketplace. And I think it's that culture there that was the beginning, right? It really lined up with the ability to to progress and, and to move uh, something forward. And so, you know, many people say in the university, but for me, I loved that that team-oriented um, challenge and the input from people who were even more successful and, and more knowledgeable in specific areas that could be assembled together so I could keep learning and driving something forward. Yeah, it's, it's, it is really interesting to hear how important that kind of team element was. It, it's really in the just reflecting on some of the things that you you've talked about that kind of being part of a team driving things forward seems to be very much part of your dna and what what excites what excites you and then talk us through then that time and um, within bioanalytics in terms of the growth the company experienced whilst you were there and and the various i suppose i, I believe transactions that happened during that time um, I'm sure that kept you <laughs> busy as well. And was it was it just being in the right place at the right time to an extent? You know, in that organization that was growing, um, yeah. and that must have been an exciting period. I'm guessing as well. 
It, it most certainly was and, and continues to be. Um, I, I think for me, actually, uh, the, the team environment wasn't where I started with bioanalytics. Um, they had a scientific core um, that was collaborating and driving the actual mass spectrometry characterizations with partners forward. Um, and my role was more forward looking. And I, I came in more in a strategic position and to work directly for the CEO. And my job was really to work with the CEO and take advising from the board and other advisors about what's the future direction of this company to really pursue that, investigate it, and help define where should we be going? Where's the marketplace going? So the company itself really focused in mass spectrometry, but the purpose of, of that tool um, and the usage of it was to be able to take sort of hard problems and solve them using a complex tool, but in an industry setting. So people were doing this kind of work in the university. And the reason they spun out is because the Barnett Institute has a board of directors that could see you can't continue to serve the industry in an academic setting. They need certain kinds of, of parameters to operate properly in the later stages. And so the company was founded to do that. Um, and so the, the science was being done mostly on, I would say, like monoclonal antibodies at the time. So it's about 12 or 13 years ago now um, that the company was founded. I was not a founder. I came in later. Um, and so they were already going. But there were new things coming, right? And gene therapy was emergent at the point that I came into the company about six and a half years ago. Um, and we were coming up to the finish line for the first time as an industry and seeing, hey, the bar is biology tools for, for these gene therapy products. And so the information content, if you compare it to something like what was expected for a, a MAB, a, a biologic, was very vague and very little by comparison. Um, and yet some of these things, they were being put on safety holds. There were concerns. People were just holding their breath, right? I don't know what's in here. And so I think instinctively the bar has to move. And so that was my job when I came in was to look out and say, well, what, what do we need to know about these products? What can we know about these products? And, and sort of devise what should we be doing and offering to our client base, right, in this gene therapy space? Um, and that was a lot of fun for me. So I really enjoyed that because it was, you know, deep investigation, deep thinking, and also really risk-based assessment of what should, you know, what do we think is going to happen, right? You have to place your bet, if you will. <laughs> uh, and, and that was a lot of fun for me. And then as the company started to grow as a result of, you know, some of the changes and, and things we did as a company, um, then the field itself evolved and there were, there were new opportunities. And so, um, my strategic role then became a, a bit strategic and a bit operational. And I, I moved into heading up the analytical development group for the company. And this was still under bioanalytics. And, and we started thinking about not just the analytics themselves, but how did the analytics fit into the development path? and kind of found a unique way to look at um, how do we interact with partners, right? Our, our clients to get them where they need to go. So the old CRO model was you have a sample, you send your sample off, there's a method that exists out there um, that you use and you send back data. And 
were molecules that had become truly kind of platformable. That's that works. It, it's a drive to kind of the lowest price point and the greatest efficiency to get what you need. Um, but in the newer modalities, it's much more complex. And I think there's there's more risk and there's less knowns, which is why you have more risk. And so it's more iterative and it really needs a more collaborative approach in order to get where you need to go in an efficient way. And so the way that you, you know, you think about interacting with your clients is very different than um, a more traditional CRO model. And so that was really what I'd be became responsible for with our company was growing our client relationships, understanding, you know, how do we work with them to help them most efficiently get where they need to go and make good decisions. So we started folding in development, sort of strategic thinking, if you will, um, into the analytical approaches. And, and that's um, where I think our company started to gain the greatest traction. Um, it grew our reputation. And it, I think the biggest marker of that was we had continued relationships and still do with the companies where we have a first project, it continues to progress. Um, and so at that point, uh, we started to go through some M&A activities. You're listening to Molecule to Market, where we go inside the outsourcing space of the global drug development sector, the podcast for professionals working in the pharma and biotech contract services space. I want to come back to a couple of points with respect to your decision to kind of go into, I suppose, into business in the commercial side and really cut your teeth on the business side of things away from obviously your the deep, the scientific and academic side of things as well. That's a journey that I see many times in, in, in the interviews that I've done where people have got a, you know, a scientific background and might not necessarily have the academic background that you do but kind of make their way into commercial, into business roles. So before we kind of go on to talk about the M&A piece within the organization, what, if you reflect back, what was, what were some of the tougher challenges or the things that you didn't realize or the, or the, maybe the misconceptions you had about working in, I suppose, a more commercial business environment that you might've had say five, 10 years before when you were in, in an academic environment? Yeah, that, that's a great question. I, I think there were a lot of learnings, some more fundamental and, and a lot of nuance, I would say. You know, decision-making has a lot of parameters to it. And if you don't have a window from experience into all of those, right, seeing the full landscape, then you may make a wrong guess <laughs> about what someone cares about and, and how much they're willing to, to basically pay for it because of their value judgment about it. I think in working with with clients, really it was that judgment about late stage priorities and development. And and I still think even now, after you know seven years of being in this discussion, um, we're just closing the gap between clinical and sort of CMC, right? And and they're two separate buckets that I think in the past were relatively straightforward in some ways to to keep separated. Um, you know, they, they had different things they had to do and, a, you know, progression was independent. And I think we're finding even with gene therapy that there's a need for interplay between them. So decision making between clinical and CMC can really influence the outcomes. Um, and 
the value judgment there is, you know, you, you got one pot of money and um, you've got to make it to the next inflection point. And so how are you going to allocate those resources to get where you want to go? Um, and, you, and you're making guesses along the way as to what's going to be the best spend and the best use, right? Uh, and I, I think we're sort of transitioning from we had a long checklist of assays uh, with MAVs that now get done, uh, and we don't have that approach in in the therapy space, right? So, so again, I think still continuing to learn, which is a good thing we are as an industry, about what's the right way to invest into the outcome you want. Um, and not everybody's thinking about it the same way. What I've seen generally over the time I've been in this is a shift from sort of just wanting the lowest price point to actually thinking more holistically about the development decisions um, and people investing a little bit more effort up front, for example, in developing a set of good methods that are informative, um, that help you to assess your risk uh, more effectively from an earlier stage. And that means you have to spend a little bit more on the front end. There's different philosophies right across that spectrum. And I would just say in general, I've seen it shift from more more conservative spend in outsourcing um, and just doing assay driven kind of check the box to more value-based judgment, risk assessment and thinking, what should I do and why should I do it? And, and me, um, I was just at uh, the well-characterized biologics proteins meeting or products meeting uh, in DC last week. And there has been a, an increased emphasis, right, even by the regulators to say, we really need science to drive the decision making and justifications based on risk are, are really how we should be thinking in this modern era. It's really interesting that, and I wanted to just pick up on a separate point there where you, the, the kind of the shift that you mentioned from that kind of lowest price point to the more value-based kind of holistic thinking. In the seven years or so that you've been doing this, and I suppose during that time, I suppose the, the prevalence of emerging therapeutics, right, in that time period, that has evolved massively from, from when, when you were first doing it. Do you think, are you seeing because of the iterative and learning on the job nature of these new therapeutic areas that vendors are seen more as partners rather than vendors, if that makes sense. So that kind of, maybe a decade ago, there was definitely more of a supplier buyer focus, whereas what you've described there, particularly in these kind of uh, more advanced therapeutic areas are more collaboration and more of a partnership approach because it's also new is that a fair assessment or jp i'd love your perspective on on that i i do agree with that um and i would say there's still a spectrum and you know again sort of it, it's shifted it's not everybody thinks the same way about everything but um i do get a lot of feedback from the people that we're working with who are leading teams you know for the innovator companies on these products that um the way in which they work with us is very advantageous to them. And once they take the first increment in that direction, the value of the information they're getting is so helpful that they continue down that path. Um, and yes, it, it is more expansive on the front end. Um, so they're making a value assessment to do that because they think 
the information and the way in which that information is put in context um, is really critical to their success, right? So, so they really are applying a value-based approach to deciding how they're going to outsource things. And, and I think that applies to all complex products, um, again, with a spectrum. So it's, you know, we may work on fewer maps at this point because many maps fall into what you could do in a sort of a platform way. But there are always outliers, and if those outliers have merit for particular reasons of, say, potency or advantages in in some form of tox prediction, right? They want to carry those forward, and then it's more of a surgical, you know, approach and thinking about how do you do that. It doesn't fit a platform, so you really have to um, say you know what you want to do and why you want to do it, and then you bring the analytics around it to help you understand what you need to do and make good decisions to carry it forward. Yeah, it's a really interesting to get uh, your take on that. And let's, let's go back to the M&A piece that you were about to talk about uh, when we when I interjected before. So pick up the story in terms of what, I suppose, what happened next and how the business evolved uh, ultimately to, to where it is today. Yeah, so um, Bioanalytics went through its first merger with a company called uh, Protogen Protein Services out of Germany. Um, there were two sites uh, at Dortmund and Heilbronn, Germany, um, and that company had been around for about 25 years. Um, it was more of a traditional CRO in terms of broad analytics, and their focus had come about around biosimilars. And so they had a larger base of operations, a more um, traditional approach to um, working with clients and, and delivering data to them for these sort of end-to-end kind of programs because biosimilars, it, in the beginning, it wasn't clear, but now looking back, it, it's it's very systematic, right? About, um, th- it's all a comparability exercise. So it's all about the analytics. And um, they were set up very well to address that market and to work in that market and being in Europe where it was um, a really big driver uh, was well positioned. So we're kind of coming into this first merger from two ends of the spectrum. One highly systematic, um, knowing what to do and having good starting points because you have an innovator molecule, right? That's been approved uh, and you now wanna make a biosimilar to it. And the bioanalytics approach coming from the opposite end of the spectrum where we're really innovating on how do you work with with clients on these really complex molecules. Um, and so that first one was to sort of broaden our tool set. And it gave us an advantage it, at the US site um, for bringing in some new approaches. So as I said, we started out with very deep mass spectrometry-based characterization, so LCMS. Um, and you can do a lot with that tool, right? So it's a broad offering set, even though it's it's really a defined tool. And we then put in complementary tools to it. So we now have what we call the, the uh, physicochemical group or separations science um, to complement that and, and to be able to take something from a deep characterization to a much more sort of amenable, uh, I would say, release style, right, assay. So you can just do an LC portion um, or another form of a separation that gets you the information that, that you need in a way where the deep characterization tells you what that simplistic profile looks like, 
but then you can rely on that simplistic profile to be able to say, yep, it's working or no, it's not working, right? Um, so it expanded our tool set and it expanded our team. So we, at the US site, uh, we went from all mass spectrometrists to um, people who had a different skill set. And that was really a, a nice compliment to be able to start to grow and, and offer um, additional things to our clients. So Jen, my understanding is as is, is time has passed, the, there was another acquisition and another merger. So talk us through the kind of next couple of years and, and how things evolved with the combined business. And then what's just what it was like you know, being in the middle of all that, you know, lots of our listeners are in organizations that are either, you know, acquisition targets or they're buying other companies or they're private equity backed. And it's, it's probably quite useful to them to hear from your perspective, what it's like to go through that. And again, any, any of the lessons that you've learned being part of a team that's been on, on that kind of M and A journey. Yeah. So I, I think there's, again, there's so many lessons you could take away from the, uh, really complex, you know, sort of scenario of, of a merger and just in talking to others, regardless of size of company, it, it's always complex. And there's a lot to um, taking two things and bringing them together. Um, the things that made each company successful in their own right may or may not fit all that easily together um, for the next increment, but they're, they're pieces that then you have to build on and connect in ways that then are meaningful for your purpose, right? And so um, I think that first MA, we really remained quite separate in our structures and our operations. And it was more of a, almost like a subcontracting relationship of, of sending work that needed to be done to different sites. And the next activity that happened, we were acquired um, about a, a year plus ago uh, by Ampersand Capital. Uh, in a play to really push us strongly into growth in the gene therapy space because of the model that I described. And in so doing, we had a third company that was joined with us uh, called GeneWork. It was a spin out uh, younger than the other two organizations out of uh, Heidelberg and focused very much on the application of bioinformatics to looking at whole genome disruptions, uh, primarily through integration site analysis. So it's very uh, particular for cell therapies, right? And trying to understand the safety implications. And, and so GeneWork had an, a very strong offering and a very strong reputation for excellence in, in doing what they, they do. Um, but that is in the clinical space. And, and the Protogen Bioanalytics Group operated in the CMC space. So really focusing on the, the manufacturing and the chemistry and the control aspects of that product. Whereas the clinical is about that product in the patient, right? And the, the safety aspects and that. So there's really quite large differences uh, in how you run and what your purposes are. Um, and so in this, this newer merger, I think one of the, the big things that we're challenged with is taking the pieces and putting them together and aligning them in such a way that we're really leveraging what clients in this space need across the board and, and growing into that. So the focus for this, you know, more recent M&A activity is more comprehensive, more um, 
oriented towards growth with filling in the empty space between the pieces and how do we do that well in order to provide a more complete offering set to our clients. Um, so we have, you know, we have some really strong, good pieces uh, to work with and we want to maintain those pieces. But we also want to be strategic about how do we add the additional pieces. And I, I think the biggest challenge um, that came was not COVID. I mean, COVID's an influence and in everything, but actually the changes in the gene therapy itself in terms of the newness of it and the evolution as a, a modalities. Uh, and so when we started out, we always say cell and gene therapy is like a phrase, right? And what I think has really happened in the last few years is we have multiple buckets and the needs of those those different modalities um, are quite different. And so now we have, through, because of COVID, we have an mRNA active play, and it has a very particular formulation with lipid nanoparticles. And so the analytics and the development process for that are necessarily very different than um, the AAV play, where you have a capsid made out of protein with the genetic material inside that you're delivering and you know you need to to apply the analytics to those differently and then the bucket of cell therapy where you're using the integrating viral vectors is again a very different set of analytics and needs in order to understand your product make sure that it's safe and efficacious right and that you can produce it the same way each time uh, and so I, I think we're gaining sophistication and how we think about the marketplace of, of CGTPs um, and, and trying to be more specific to the modality. It's, it's, it's fascinating, I suppose, hearing how you have been at the center of all this whilst these, I suppose, more modern therapeutic areas have, have been right at the kind of center of their growth and you guys have been in the right place at the right time to support uh, these, these new areas. I know we only have about five minutes or so left, Jen, and and I wanted to say congratulations to you on your uh, on being being named as CSO as part of your new role, which is which is I'm sure very well deserved. And I was looking at the the press release that came out from the business, and there was a there was a couple of lines in there that that I I really quite enjoyed and 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 kind of highlighted. So. I'm not going to read it back verbatim because it's your quote. Um, but you talked about, I suppose, uh, emerging therapeutics and the how these therapeutic areas do not play by the rules, which I think is fascinating in itself. So, what did you mean by that, or what does that what does that infer? Is that about the fact that they don't follow the checklist? I suppose old rule book and the kind of or a newer novel way that it requires that iteration that you talked about that's my understanding but i would love you to kind of talk a bit about that because i think i love the words actually uh that they don't play by the rules so i'd love you to talk about that <laughs> thanks um yeah i like analogies and and i i liken things sometimes anthropomorphizing to you know get a flavor for something and I really think gene therapies 
are as individual as people, right? So there's things that make people people and we're all the same in certain ways, but it's the nuance and the complexities of being different that make us who we are. And I, I think, you know, there's sort of, it's a big sandbox. Um, and there, there's a lot of room for things to be not what we expect when you're talking about things that are as complex as they are. And it's often the things that you don't understand that trip you up, right? Because if you do understand them, you're going to control for them and you know how to judge them. But it's the things that you don't know are coming. And if you're, for example, suppliers change it, it, for something as simple as an upstream process in your media, uh, that can influence how your product comes out the other side. Um, and you may have features or attributes to a product that got affected by that change. And if you're not looking in sufficient detail, you get surprised on the other end when, say, you get a safety hold. And so then you have to go backwards and figure it out. And I, I think that's really what I meant is um, it, they're just unpredictable in, in ways that we don't have a handle on. Um, you know, we've got a good handle in general, kind of on the first pass, but it, it's the nuances of, you know, one product is different from the next. And so taking the same approach to analyzing a product that's even in the same category may need to be adjusted and you may need to, to think about sort of the individuality of that in order to um, assess your risk properly. Thanks for that. It's, uh, I'm pleased to get your perspective and bringing that to light a little bit more. And on the subject of predictability, talk to us about you know, the future and trends and where you see the industry going, specifically in the area that you play, uh, talking about complex products and emerging therapies and the various different buckets. You know, if you look ahead 18 to 24 months, I'm I'm assuming you'll see you're seeing continued growth of these areas. But anything else that you can share in terms of what you expect to see uh, moving forward? Happily, uh, I think that we will continue to see um, a higher and increasing bar for detailed understanding of these more complex modalities. Um, it's not, it has to be matched with the reality of you actually have to have the money, right, to do the work. Um, and so it's not going to wildly go up and double the cost for people because it can't, we would just not have a business model anymore. But I, I think we have to, to see some of the trajectories as increasing for specific reasons and really thinking from a logic perspective about what do we need to do and why do we need to do it? And then using that information to make good sense about the program that we're building. So, you know, just adding more and more analyses, you could go on infinitely, right? And you could learn as much as as is possible, um, but that just raises the the cost and you can't do that as a business. So we really have to make smart decisions. And I, I think we're learning particular things about these modalities and, and sharing that information is really critical to the efficiency in the industry of being able to make more of these rather expensive medications, right? So it's it's a very large investment and, an, and a larger investment when you have a more complex molecular system. Um, and so I think we'll hone in on what I'm hearing, 
you know, the industry say, which is really risk-based assessment, using your analytics to support that you understand what you're making and what it means. Uh, so that's where I see us going. How we get there, again, differs from bucket to bucket and product to product. And I think that's why it's so important that we're, um, we're really thinking, you know, and, and working with, in particular for us, working with our clients in an iterative and collaborative way to get across the finish line. Yeah, some great insights there that I'm sure the listener is uh, jotting down and, and taking into their own <laughs> organization. Last last couple of questions, because I know we're, we're almost at time, Jen. In, I suppose, researching you and your background and the incredible career that you achieved, one thing that, that got my attention, I suppose, was your role in uh, women in bio and generally uh, as a female leader, um, which, you know, given given the role that you have and the seniority that, that you have. So I'd love, love to you to just wax lyrical about the work that you do in inspiring, I suppose, women in bio, in, how broad that is. But also, I suppose, as you reflect back on the younger version of Jen, if you could go back and, and give yourself some advice when you were 25, yeah, yeah as old as a, as a young female, what would that advice be? And the reason I'm asking that question, Jen, is we do have a lot of younger females that listen to the podcast and are trying to um, develop a great career for themselves within the space. So I think any pills of wisdom for, for someone like yourself would, would no doubt be well received. Yeah, that that's always a great question and a hard question, Ron. I um, <laughs> that could be a whole podcast unto itself. <laughs> I'm generous. Sorry, sorry to throw the cable in right now. And I say that because I I actually really care very deeply about the subject, and and not necessarily just from the perspective of women. I mean that that's one aspect of it, um, but I think in general the way we think about sort of diversity inclusiveness really needs to go to to thought. Um, and people think differently, and it's not apparent on the surface. Um, there are things that, for example, you know, women as a group um, maybe have a, a commonality about um, needing to work on or, or the way they think about something um, that's either valuable or tripping them up. And so, you know, for example, with the, the women in bio and things like that, um, I really tried to listen and encourage people to think for themselves about what it is they want and to match their ambitions right to what they do. And so I think, you know, it, it's, it becomes having a purpose, knowing what you want to achieve. And that's not the same for each person. And so when you have um, a large group of women, you can kind of give general advice, but really it's the one-on-one -on -one relationships and the mentoring where people are getting listened to um, and building a trusted relationship where you have someone who can be honest with you about your deficiencies and what you need to do to get there. And so um, oftentimes what we want is is just comfort <laughs> uh, as women, but really what we need is a kick in the pants. And it's, you know, this is the world we live in. It's a competitive world and you need to be a competitor um, and thinking about how to position yourself and that to go where you want to go is a really critical piece and having people that get into it with you, uh, for example, through mentoring relationship is really critical to being able to do that. I mean, when I was 
starting out, we didn't even talk about these kinds of things. It, it didn't really exist. Um, and so now there's immense opportunities. Like people just volunteer to be mentors <laughs> you know, because somebody asks. Um, and so I would say asking is the start. Um, but really realizing, you know, it's up to you to do what you need to do to do the heavy lifting and sometimes face the challenges. So, um, you know, by nature, you wouldn't know it from this conversation. I'm actually a relatively quiet person um, who likes <laughs> to sit quietly, uh, you know, and I get confused for someone who's quite social most of the time, but that's my discipline. It's the importance of being connected to the people around you and Part of that for me is actually driven by, I really care about people and their ambitions and, and wanting to see them succeed on their own terms. Uh, and I think that that's what getting involved with organizations like Women in Bio does. Um, I really enjoyed doing it also through Mass Bio, which was more of an entrepreneurial relationship, providing that kind of mentoring for thinking about how to be an entrepreneur. Uh, and to me, it's all the commonality of actually just wanting to see other people succeed and giving them the support so that they can do the things for themselves to get themselves to where they want to go. Well, that's it. A caring leader and a kick in the pants, I think, is a <laughs> perfect, perfect place to end what has been a really enjoyable conversation. I know we've had this in the diary for for a while, Jen, and it's uh, it's been great to get you on the podcast and, and bring your story to the ears of our listeners so uh, thank you so much for making the time in your very busy schedule and being a guest on molecules market it was my pleasure roman thanks for the invitation and i really enjoyed speaking with you as well hi again thanks for tuning in to today's show i really hope you enjoyed the episode for more shows have a look on spotify apple or amazon wherever you like to listen and do make sure that you subscribe so the next episode comes direct to your device automatically and please get in touch via our website at molecule to market pod or via linkedin or twitter we love to hear from you so if you have a guest that you want to suggest or someone in your organization that you think would make a great guest on molecule to market then please let us know we'll see you very soon listening to Molecule to Market, where we go inside the outsourcing space of the global drug development sector, the podcast for professionals working in the pharma and biotech contract services space. Molecule to Market is sponsored and funded by Remarketing, an international content, digital and design agency that helps companies get noticed, raise profile and generate leads in life sciences.